Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, uh, we are now looking at Jesus speaking uh, about this topic, this question that is posed to him about fasting. Now, if you recall, the previous passage that we looked at was about eating and drinking. It was about when, um, about who Jesus was eating and drinking with, how he was spending his time. And so Luke kind of puts this right up against that one. So we have a question of, of who does Jesus spend time at the table with? Who are the people that he uh, wants to spend time with? Who is he eating and drinking with? Um, and he he says there, in response to the uh, this question of the Pharisees asking him in, in verse 30, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responds there, uh, telling them that he wants to be with those who recognize their need, who have a need and who recognize that need. And, and, and he is willing to um, be a physician who calls the sick, who fixes the sick. And he says there at the end, of uh, it, that passage in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not saying uh, that there are people who are righteous. What he's getting at there is that there are people who are aware that they have a spiritual need. There are people who are aware that they are um, in need of a savior that they cannot rescue themselves. And the Pharisees have not come to that realization or they are rejecting it outright. Um, and so when Jesus is making this, this statement there, he's not saying that there are a group of people that are so righteous that uh, they do not need him. He's, he's pointing out that, that this is about recognizing the need and the willingness to change and the willingness to, uh, to listen to his words. And so uh, they come at him with this idea of uh, you're eating with the wrong people. And Jesus says, I'm trying to be with people who are willing to change. And so the theme that, that is kind of our, our, um, our through line that connects these passages is that willingness to change. And Luke uses this idea of, of food in the first passage about who Jesus is spending time at the table with, and now in the second passage about abstaining from food, uh, this is all about who is who is willing to change. And so we open our text in verse 33 uh, with this statement, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So the statement comes out, Hey, Jesus, what's going on? Uh, there are the disciples of John. They uh, fast. They offer prayers. Um, the disciples of the Pharisees, they also fast. They offer prayers. Um, but your disciples, the people who follow you, you guys just seem like you're doing a lot of eating and drinking. We don't see you fasting. We don't see you observing these things. Now, what is the deal with this? Uh, well, we want to understand what is the history, what is the practice of fasting uh, in the Old Testament, and what is the context in which uh, this is being spoken? And so there was a, a rich significance, a historical significance about fasting within uh, the ancient times, it was particularly in the Old Testament period, um, and was connected certainly to worship. Uh, but above all, what we want to understand here is that 
within the Old Testament, there is uh, one literal spot where where Israel is commanded as a national people to fast. So there's only one actual required fast in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is, of course, on the Day of Atonement. This is uh, when the entire nation would um, would uh, fast and they would uh, the high priest would offer up um, sacrifices for uh, the nation. Uh, this was the day when everybody was required. It was prescribed in the law for them to fast. Uh, this is the only required day that exists in the scriptures. But there are uh, other examples in the scriptures where we find <clears throat> fasts being used for other occasions. These are not things that are required. These are not things that are um, that would uh, would have been uh, necessarily. Uh, demanded of God's people, um, but they were things that in Israel's history that were connected to significant events, times of, of uh, that they were looking to remember or uh, periods of uh, sorrow or mourning. Uh, you find that there are um, a four-day a four-day long fast that takes place to uh, remember the destruction of Jerusalem. You find um, in the Old Testament that there are a great many times where um, fasting accompanies uh, sorrow, uh, mourning um, in sackcloth and ashes and abstaining from food. Uh, so there were periods where that happened as a practice. Um, and then individuals would also fast for different reasons. The, the prophets would fast um, in hopes of God's deliverance. There were, uh, when they were facing judgment, when, um, when, they, when there was like uh, big national events, there were, people would be seeking the Lord and they would often fast in association with these things. But these things were never prescribed. They were never demanded. It was never a part of the law. But what did happen was that the Pharisees had developed fasting into a, a regular practice, something that was demanded, and they added to the law. And so for the Pharisees, they would fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. They would fast. Um, and John's, John's disciples, it seems, uh, they uh, fast as well, uh, not on the same necessarily calendar at, um, and frequency as the Pharisees, but John's disciples, they certainly fast as well uh, as they follow uh, the patterns and rhythms of John the Baptist. And so uh, you recall here, the question comes into, uh, into play, like, what's going on? Uh, these particular groups, the, the Pharisees, the disciples of John, they are fasting. Uh, but Remember, we want to understand the context. Although this is not required, this is a, a considered to be a highly religious act. It was something that you would do to demonstrate your commitment, your seriousness about the Lord. Um, you would do uh, for particular reasons. Uh, and often the person who was fasting was reflecting uh, the, uh, the attitude of someone who was sorrowful, who was grieving, who was mourning. Um, you see this all throughout the Old Testament, but uh, above all, fasting was primarily about preparation. It was about preparing for all sorts of activity within, uh, within uh, Jewish history. 
preparing uh, for God to rescue, asking the Lord to deliver. It was connected to uh, these particular moments. But there were particular times when fasting was explicitly prohibited, and that would have been on uh, the Sabbath and on feast days. Those were times where you were not allowed to fast. Uh, but you see here the, the, the heavy importance of this within the context that Jesus is operating in. Uh, there, there were a group of people who were influencing society and culture as a, at, uh, at large, and they were convincing everybody that you needed to be doing this as well. Uh, also, we find that the disciples of John are taking up uh, practice as well in a serious manner. Um, and so Jesus comes straight from uh, in, into this atmosphere, and he is someone who has just finished eating with tax collectors and sinners. At, and spending time with them at the table. And now he's not observing uh, the practices of the Pharisees. He's not fasting in the same way. And so the question comes to him, uh, the disciples of John fast often and they pray and the disciples of the Pharisees do. Um, but what's going on with you, Jesus? What's, what's going on? There's some similarities between these two groups, but something seems to be a bit off. Something seems to be weird with your disciples. You guys never do this. You guys never practice this, you and your um, followers. And so Jesus responds um, and, uh, with an analogy. He responds by giving them uh, some insight, but he also, simultaneous to, to this, he makes uh, an incredible claim. So look with me at verse 34. He says, uh, and Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So he responds uh, with this incredible image with, uh, with which they would have been familiar, uh, the festive image of a wedding celebration. Now, within uh, this time, a, wed a wedding in a Jewish village uh, would last for about seven days, um, and the friends of, of, of the uh, couple getting married, the guests of the wedding, they had no responsibilities attached to them. Their only job was to like enjoy the festivities, to have a, a, a nice party. Um, there was tons of, of food and wine and singing and dancing. And uh, there, were, there were activities in the streets and within uh, the houses of the hosts. Um, and even uh, those who were rabbis, who were teachers of the law, they were expected to uh, stop their instruction of their students and to participate uh, in these events. And so <clears throat> as Jesus rolls this out here, he's saying, picture the, the guests of the groom. This is just one side here. Uh, they are gathering for this wedding party, and they're um, they're they're getting ready to enjoy this feast. Uh, they're they're um, waiting for this moment, and, and Jesus uses this as a picture to to tell them that here is the tone surrounding my followers, the attendants, the the uh, friends, the guests of the groom. They do not fast as long as the groom is present. We're here uh, for something that is not a time of um, <clears throat> a time of uh, waiting per se, but we're here for a time of uh, of celebration of welcoming. And so he rolls this out for 
this group of people who are asking him this question. But he also goes beyond this, just not to say that, okay, now it's not the appropriate time to fast, but he's also making uh, a greater claim here. Because when he speaks of um, uh, the, the bridegroom here, he says, the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. Now, when he says this, <clears throat> the bridegroom is not normally attached to the previous claims that he's made. Remember, he's used some other uh, claims that were uh, messianic in nature that would have been attached to uh, God's anointed one who is coming, his promised uh, Messiah, his deliverer. But there's not a spot in the Old Testament where you find uh, this Christ figure, the Messiah, presented as a bridegroom. This doesn't exist. This is, and, so, and so here in this moment, Jesus is using this analogy, but he's also using it to make a specific claim. Because in the Old Testament, anytime a bridegroom is mentioned, it's connected to God as Israel's husband. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, uh, we read this, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Later in Isaiah 62, verse 5, uh, we get this again. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Um, a, a third spot uh, to highlight this morning in Hosea chapter 2, uh, verse 19. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And so uh, these are just three, three spots um, out of many where God is described as being committed to Israel, uh, as uh, God is the husband of Israel, that he is committed to his people, that he will love and serve and be faithful to Israel. And so when Jesus does this, he's not alluding to, uh, to his messianic calling, his uh, he is uh, taking on the rights, the privileges of God himself in this analogy. And so he says, the guests who are here, uh, they are here to celebrate, but Israel as a whole, I am coming to love and serve her. I am coming to be faithful. He's taking on a, a, greater, um, a greater role in the eyes of these questioners. And so by contrast, he says here, uh, there's a time and a place for fasting, um, but this is not that time and place. There's going to be a moment for that, uh, but I'm here to begin the deliverance of my people. I'm coming to uh, bring these uh, verses into fulfillment, to rescue them, to rescue God's people, to bring them into a relationship with him. And so he tells them that there will be a time when it's appropriate, uh, but this time is not now. Look at verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So he shares that there's going to be a moment, a change 
in situation, uh, the circumstances um, in a period of time where there's going to be a change in how they respond. And of course, as he speaks here, the days will come uh, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Of course, he's speaking directly there uh, to his coming death. He's speaking to that moment where it will be appropriate to mourn. It will be appropriate to be um, sad. It will be appropriate there in that moment. Um, but he's also, again, doing something a little bit deeper. He's connecting himself to that figure laid out in uh, the book of Isaiah, who God sends as the suffering servant who will rescue his people. Just as Jesus says, there will, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. So he's alluding to uh, the very passage in Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant who will be taken away. Uh, in verse 8, it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And so you find here Jesus using language uh, that echoes uh, back to this passage of Isaiah 53. And so it's during that moment, during those days of Jesus's uh, death, um, that hit that period there, that it would be appropriate for uh, mourning. And he says that that's when you would fast. You would fast in those days. At the time of, of Jesus's uh, departure, when he is gone, that will be when he's not physically present with them, that would be the time where it would be also appropriate. There will be that time, an option for um, for the church to participate in fasting as, uh, as the church uh, looks forward to the return of Christ, um, as Jesus has ascended, the church looks forward to the return of Christ and the final fulfillment um, of, of the renewing of all creation. There, in that period of time, when Jesus is here, there will be times there where uh, fasting is appropriate, Jesus calls out. Um, and you see this begin to pr be practiced uh, in the New Testament, in the early church. Uh, there were fasts that were practiced for guidance, much like uh, you would have found in the Old Testament. But there are no fasts that are practiced in the New Testament for mourning. They are for preparation. They are for seeking the Lord. Because there's a new era that has arrived. There's a new moment, a new kingdom that has been inaugurated with the arrival of Jesus, uh, with his death, with his resurrection. And so mourning is gone. And now we look to a new hope, a new resurrection. We look to a new moment where we fast not in mourning, but we fast in preparation. Now, one thing I want you to also see here is that as Jesus makes this allowance for fasting in this new period, he explicitly does not call out frequency. He does not call it out as a requirement. He says that there will be a time when it's appropriate, but he does not, um, he does not regulate it. He doesn't make it a test of, of how spiritual one is. He simply puts it out there as an option for it being appropriate. Uh, the Apostle Paul speaks uh, to this and allows a, a great amount of flexibility with how one ought to uh, treat others uh, and, and to 
deal with themselves as they consider this particular topic. In uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 5, we see um, a little bit of the, the, the flexibility, the parameters, the spirit that Paul's trying to speak to of what Jesus gets at here. Uh, in verse uh, uh, 5 of Romans 14, he says, One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. So he says, okay, there's two people. One person says, this day is really important. And the other person's like, eh, it's just like the same as any other day. But he says here, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So he, so the, the beginning of this is that this is a matter of conscience and that this is something that you have to do with intention, with focus that you cannot be indifferent to considering this, but you've got to be fully convinced in your own mind. That means that you have to do business with the Lord yourself, that you have to come and seek the Lord and you have to pray about it and you have to ask him and you have to be firm in it. You've got to know that he has led you to this moment, to this position. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, you can seek the Lord on, on all sorts of topics at all sorts of different times. It's not necessarily have to be one time for all. This is what I'm always going to do. You can do it fresh each time. There's a lot of flexibility here. But he says here uh, that you should do it with intention. You can't accidentally do this. You can't do it because you can't participate in uh, some of these spiritual activities because you're lazy, because everybody else is doing it. You should do it as you have sought the Lord yourself. Uh, verse six of Romans 14, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So there is both someone who fasts and someone who eats, but he says the, the, the goal is that you are being grateful that you are thanking the Lord regardless. There's a, a day where you're celebrating, where you're honoring the Lord and one might fast and one might eat. Neither is wrong. You've got to do it with intention and you've got to do it. So where the goal is that you are giving thanks, you are honoring the Lord. You're not doing this out of, uh, of condemnation. You're not doing this because other people are doing it, uh, but you are doing it to give thanks to the Lord. Verse seven, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For the, to this end, Christ died and live again, lived again, that he might be both uh, might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So we we find the description here that uh, you have got to process this before the Lord yourself, uh, that you have to do this with thanksgiving to the Lord. And when you are uh, living, you're living unto the Lord. When you are abstaining and when you're dying to yourself, when you're denying yourself, you're doing it unto the Lord. It all belongs to him. If you're doing it for your own purposes, for your own guilt, that's not that's not for him. He doesn't need you to uh, make yourself feel guilty. Christ has already died for your sins and for your guilt. You don't need to make yourself feel guilty. You can rejoice in him. If the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads you to these places by his purpose and for his intention, then do it thankfully as unto the Lord. But it's not the end all be all. Jesus only spends like the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest bit of time on this particular 
uh, topic, because as we said, Jesus's prime topic here is not about fasting. It's about who is open to the kingdom of God, who is open to be intentional in seeking him, in receiving his words, who is open to receiving what he would say. And so he presses in on uh, that deeper issue through three short parables. <clears throat> um, and he lays these things out in a way with, with a garment uh, and wine and a, a winemaking process and a wine tasting process. So three short little parables here for us to, to look at uh, that he puts to his questioners. Verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So here's what he's getting at. You got a garment, an old garment, old piece of fabric. It's got a hole in it. You got to patch it up. Um, and uh, taking a section from a new garment, you perfectly intact, it's great, and you cut out a piece of that, it's going to ruin the new garment but it's also going to be insufficient to help the old garment. The new cloth does not match the old. And so the new cloth is going to um, adjust in size. It's going to shrink. It's going to uh, warp a little bit. And it's going to tear the already settled fabric of the old. Mixing the new and the old turns out to be destructive. It doesn't turn out to be helpful. It turns out to be destructive. And so Jesus brings his first uh, analogy out here with the cloth uh, to show them that mixing the new and the old is problematic. But he goes on and he explains it a little bit further with the second one in verse 37. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. So the idea here is this concept of, of a winemaking. And um, at this time, they didn't have, uh, you know, all these wine barrels where they would be putting things in. Uh, wine skins were usually made out of like a sheep skin or a goat skin. And um, they would uh, take the animal and um, they would kind of use uh, the, the full body of the animal as kind of this um, container and they would clean it up and skin it and, uh, you know, remove the hair and uh, process it in such a way to where uh, the wine, as it comes into contact with the, the lining, it would not take on um, different tastes or odors that were associated with uh, the animal, but instead would uh, be uh, a, a perfect environment for the, uh, for the wine to develop over time. And so, um, you would take this wine and you would put it into uh, the wine skins there um, and uh, it would mature and ferment over time. Uh, but what Jesus' point is here is that over time, those wine skins, they begin to uh, be used several times over and uh, they become brittle and eventually they crack and they break. Um, and so what he's saying here is that uh, you wouldn't take a new 
crop, a new harvest of wine. As you go through uh, the process of crushing all the grapes and pouring them in there and beginning the fermentation process, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put that um, culture that is alive into a container that has already reached its maximum expansion. It can't go any further because as soon as you do that, as soon as you pour that that new wine into old wineskins, the fermentation process begins, uh, it begins to expand, it begins to grow, it's alive inside of there, and it cannot be contained by those older wineskins, and it would begin to crack, and it would break, and it would ruin both uh, the old wineskins, it would ruin the old containers, but it would also ruin uh, that new crop of wine. Again, nothing would be uh, useful there. It would, it would be destructive to both as well. And so instead, Jesus tells us in verse 38, the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So new wine must have new skins. New ways must have new containers. The new thing that Jesus is doing must have a new uh, method, a new way about it. The focus here is... Um, not on looking back to something that's old, but he's focused here on providing the transition, the pivot to the presence of his new work, something new. Now, this doesn't mean that the old ways are irrelevant, that they cannot continue. It doesn't mean that the worship that's prescribed in the Old Testament or fasting can't continue, but it does mean that they have a different perspective, a different view. They need to be practiced with a different mindset, a different way. So, for example, like what we said, uh, there is the fasting that we see practiced in the New Testament is not for mourning, but for preparation. The mourning is already done. Uh, as we have mourned uh, the death of Jesus, we've mourned sin, and now we look to uh, a new life. So the, the fasting that we find in the New Testament is about all about preparation, about readiness, about excitement. It's a, it's a foretaste of looking to something new. And so uh, Jesus is telling his questioners here, hey, like, things are going to, things are going to be, uh, different. So you've got to be open to these new things. There are, uh, unconventional methods that you, um, might not be used to. You, you got to be open to these things. And, you know, you see some of these things played out in the, in the previous sections of chapter five, where you have these four guys who are like destroying the roof of someone's house to bring down a paralytic into the middle of Jesus's teaching. Like that's something new that would not have happened in a previous, uh, with a previous rabbi or, or a previous teacher. And so we find here that there's an openness and excitement to this uh, new way that Jesus is describing. New wine, new wineskins. How is he working? What is he doing? How is he going about these things? Uh, it's about following following Jesus. Where is he going? But there are some who don't want to hear this, who don't want to respond to this particular message. Uh, they don't want to, to change. They don't like the new ways. They don't want the new ways. Uh, and, and so Jesus addresses them uh, in verse 39. He says, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. So this 
statement here um, is actually a, uh, it's connected to a common phrase that would have existed in this ancient time uh, that Jesus uses. He pulls this out as an example. He's not trying to speak about this um, in terms of uh, explicitly the winemaking process. This is not just a, this is not just a comment here. That's like a throwaway. That's like, well, you know, Jesus is saying that new wine's always better than old wine. Like, you know, this is not to, he's not trying to pull out some statement that like we're meant to pull out against like today's winemakers and be like, you guys shouldn't be aging your wine for like 10 years or three years or whatever. Like Jesus says new wine's better. And like, you know, and, and like, that's not the statement he's trying to make here. What he is trying to do is connect this particular uh, statement, his analogy with a common saying, a common phrase of the time. And basically what he's getting at here is that when people say the old is good, it's speaking to their, their desire not to be an expert in wine, but their inability, their uh, desire to not change. I like the old one better. I'm, I'm set in my old ways. He's not, he's not saying here that, uh, people are definitively saying that the old is better in flavor and in taste and quality and any of that. He's getting to this phrase, this, uh, this saying of the time that tells them there are, the, there are people who are attached to the old wine and they're not going to like the taste of the new wine, even if the new wine is better. They will always want the old. He's bringing, he's bringing a bit of a, of, a, of, of a subtle rebuke to those people who are unwilling to change that they don't want to alter the way that they look at who he is and their new ways. They reject uh, his process. They reject the teachings that he's bringing. Some people, they don't even want to try to taste uh, the, the new wine that Jesus brings. Some people uh, don't ever want to change their perspective. And so when you don't want to even taste it, when you don't even want to try it, uh, you're not even going to ever sense that you might like it, that you're, uh, you might have a need. And, and much like the, the Pharisees in the previous passage who do not sense that they have a need, he says, Jesus says that there are some people who are going to reject this outright because they just are so set in their ways that they're going to say, the old's good. I'm good. I'm fine with the old. I'm just going to stay where I'm at. Less work, less to think about. It's, it's, easier for me to not do anything. They don't have to process it. I'm settled on the old. I'm fine here. And so he encounters this group of people and he uses these three analogies to say that there is something new coming, right? And, but clearly we see that the church picked this up. Clearly we see that, that the church ran with it. Uh, and we see that Jesus continues on with this as well. He makes this statement here uh, about this question about fasting um, in Luke chapter five, but he deals with it on the basis of wine, new wine, new wineskins. There's a new way. He's trying to lay down the path that there is a new way. He's trying to lay out that there's a time and a period for fasting, but it is not when he's present with them. But now uh, the early church comes into a place in the book of Acts where you find that when they practice fasting, they are connecting it uh, not only 
um, to their seeking the Lord, seeking guidance from him, but they're connecting it uh, to uh, an event that's much further into the future. Uh, as we said, fasting was, was an, and uh, in, in it's for, you know, our modern times, it's designed to be something that is about uh, preparation. It's about uh, readying oneself. It's about um, seeking the Lord. And Jesus lays this out essentially uh, for us uh, as he replays some of what we find in the last two chapters where Jesus eats ultimately with tax collectors and sinners, uh, where he speaks about the importance of the new wine, and then he speaks with the celebration of, uh, of uh, a feast. Look at uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 14, and we see Jesus essentially rolling this out for us um, in his exchange with his disciples at the Last Supper. In verse 14 of Luke 22, we find uh, a, uh, another situation where Jesus is with his disciples at the table. And we read this. And when the hour came, he reclined at table in the apostles with him. These men who have been following him, these men who were a tax collector, who were sinners, are with him. And he tells them in verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he wants to eat this with them. He wants to be together with them to celebrate this. This is not a moment here on this day. It is a celebration. It's a, it's a feast day. So they are here to eat. They're here to eat. Okay. For I tell you, uh, I will not uh, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup uh, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So again, we find here Jesus rolling out the new, the new covenant, the new wine, his blood shed for his people, a new container where he will go and suffer. He will go and, uh, and suffer at the cross. And he wants to come to the table and he says, I'm going to, to go and suffer. I'm going to, uh, to be in your place to shed my blood, a new way, a new work, a new container. And, and he charges his followers, his disciples, with a preparation of remembrance. So he tells them, do this in remembrance of me. Observe this practice in remembrance of me. Come to the table, the bread, the cup, in remembrance of me. He tells them that this is a practice for you to observe, that you come together on, on uh, festival days. You come together and, and have this. But what happens here is that, uh, that we remember Jesus, but Jesus fasts. We remember Jesus, but Jesus fasts. Remember, he says, 
I have desired to eat this with you before I suffer. But I will, uh, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he tells them in verse 18, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So we remember what he has done, but he fasts. Remember, he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to be reunited with him. And this all calls back to what Jesus was using in the beginning to explain his analogy. Uh, to explain this idea, the question of fasting, when is it appropriate? Well, when the bridegroom and the bride uh, are separated, that's not the time to fast, but when they are united, that is the time to feast. And this is exactly what happens uh, as we fast forward to the end in Revelation 19, and we'll finish here, where we see that the fasting ends and the feast begins. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty uh, peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You see this kick off uh, a massive feast. There is no time for fasting because the, the groom, the bridegroom will be reunited with his people. There will be a, a great invitation to all to feast together in excitement, in joy, in celebration, and to uh, Jesus at that moment will take up the cup again, that which he's been preparing for, that he's longing for that day. And so as we participate in the family of God, as we walk with Jesus day by day, we have the opportunity to commune with him in, uh, in prayer. We have the opportunity to participate in fasting as he has allowed us that opportunity, but it's one of preparation, of excitement, of seeking, of guidance. It's not one of, um, of mourning, of sadness. It is one where we are directed to give thanks to the Lord. I remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul, which we uh, read in Romans chapter 14. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. It's about him. It's not about you. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's it. We are the Lord's. We belong to him. It's not up to us. It's not our work. It's not our decision. It's up to him. We want to know him. We want to pursue him. We want to be with him. And we look forward to that day where we will enjoy that marriage supper of the lamb. We look forward to that with eager expectation, with excitement, because it's going to be awesome. And at that time, uh, the, the fasting will be turned to feasting and we will forever be enjoying our Lord and Savior. And so as uh, Jesus lays out here for these, this group of people, he is 
the bridegroom. He is not just the Messiah. He is God himself. He is the one who has come to rescue his people. He has come to save them. And he has come to engage us in that new work, that new wine. And we want to follow him wherever he goes. We want to be open to his leading. We want to uh, be directed by him that we might know uh, where he's taking us. We don't want to be brittle and rigid old wineskins, but we want to be a people who are open to his work, where he's going. Because where he's going, we are going to follow because we belong to him. And so we rejoice over this opportunity uh, to come to the passage here about fasting, which is really uh, only slightly about fasting and mostly uh, about being open to the new work of Christ and looking to that day where we will feast uh, together with him. And so let's pray and we will uh, respond together um, as we uh, uh, respond in, in uh, songs of worship. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for uh, this opportunity to, um, to reflect upon that day in the future where we will see you face to face, where we will enjoy you forever, where we will um, eat and drink with one another, um, and we will remember your work at the cross. And so, Lord, um, what an exciting day that will be. We pray that you would um, cause us to have a deeper longing for that, for that time, for that moment in our hearts even now, um, and that as we develop our understanding of what that will be, Lord, may you um, cause us uh, to see that in contrast to uh, the cares of this world, the things that so easily distract us, the things that um, are shiny and bright and appear new, but are really just uh, broken, that are corrupted. But we know that, Lord, you have uh, a new a new plan, a new way, a new work, and we want to walk with you in it. And so, Lord, we want to set off on that journey, on the narrow path with you again uh, today, even now, um, asking that you would lead us and that you would go before us and empower us to be faithful as we walk with you um, each day. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church as we seek to serve you. We love you. Amen.